This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Hello and welcome to The Tonight Show. Will four out of five adults be vaccinated by the end of June? Or could supply issues and trade wars spell disaster for our rollout? We'll have the latest live from Brussels on today's meeting of EU leaders. On our first panel this evening, we're joined by Minister of State for European Affairs, Thomas Byrne, and by co-leader of the Social Democrats, Roisin Shortall. And mornings, disease levels in the community are not decreasing. What, if any, easings of restrictions can be expected next week, as an economic report warns no recovery in the jobs market until 2023. And later in the programme, broadcaster Eamon Dunphy on his relationship with Irish sporting legend Jack Charlton, ahead of a highly anticipated documentary about the former Ireland manager's life and battle with dementia. He was hard as nails. I think he's a bit that little man. We have got the ball, we are cowardly. I don't like him. Was he out of order the way he treated me? Yes. What a little clap. If people didn't like it, fuck him. That was Jack. Get in touch via Twitter with the hashtag TonightVMTV. Now, before we get to our first studio panel tonight, we're joined live from Brussels by Europe correspondent with Euronews, Shona Murray. Shona, we're hearing tonight that the EU has exported more vaccine doses than has been administered to the citizens of the EU. How can that be? Yeah, that's right. Well, the EU is the biggest exporting uh, country or, I suppose, area in the world. So that does make quite a bit of sense. 21 million vaccines have gone to the UK. So I think... You know, it was to be expected that the EU would export a huge amount of vaccines. The, the problem that the EU has at the moment is that some of the vaccine manufacturers aren't delivering on their contracts with the EU and they're then um, preferring, as we know, the UK, for example. So I think that's the main issue. So does that mean then that we will get some sort of export ban put in place to make sure that there isn't an unfairness in who gets what? Well, they agreed amongst the leaders today they would go ahead with this um, mechanism that would allow the EU prevent the exportation of vaccines 
if a country that those vaccines were going to wasn't reciprocating or if they had you know, high proportion of vaccines. But we heard also today from Ursula von der Leyen and uh, Mark Rutte, the Dutch Prime Minister, that they hope it won't be used, that it's really just a mechanism there to ensure that there is free trade. And in particular, Mark Rutte, he did a press conference there, he is quite optimistic about the fact that the EU and the UK are actually in talks about settling this issue with AstraZeneca, because we know AstraZeneca isn't delivering in any way on its contract for the EU, and that this issue can actually be sort of said politically. So it's kind of a bit of a ratcheting down of the sort of tensions over the past few days. Now, what about the concerns within continental Europe of a so-called fourth wave? Where are the major problem spots emerging and why? Well, France in particular is, is pretty bad at 50,000 new cases. Also Germany, which was actually in the middle of reopening, you know, from the 2nd of March onwards, it has had a gradual plan to reopen uh, parts of Germany, including, you know, the hairdressers, eventually opening bars and restaurants. But they've had to put to a halt to that and actually implement a lockdown. Similarly, here in Belgium, they thought on the 1st of May they're going to start opening bars and restaurants, and they've also closed the schools now for over Easter. So, yeah, it's pretty horrific because, obviously, that should have been done. All those reopenings should have been done in tandem with a uh, successful rollout. But this, the, the rollouts haven't been good in member states. Even the ones that have, have vaccines, they're not doing as well. Um, so it's, it's looking pretty bad, in particular in France as well, which didn't lock down as much over Christmas so this, it, it, there is just obviously concerns that this fourth wave, it, wave is among us. Um, and in particular, it appears to be the British variant that is the most dominant, around 65 75% of all the cases. Shona, thank you very much for joining us from Brussels this evening. Well, we're joined now by, on the panel by the Minister of State for European Affairs, Thomas Byrne, and also by co-leader of the Social Democrats, Roisin Shortall. Those figures about the exports, does that suggest that really, whatever about the mess they may have made of dealing with the illness last year, the British have really been on the ball when it comes to knowing to vaccinate their own first? Well, the British have certainly done deals that have advantaged them up to now. There's no question about that. We wouldn't know about any of this but for the uh, export authorisation mechanism that the European Commission brought in a few weeks ago. They strengthened that this week. The leaders endorsed that tonight. So that's how we have that information. And that's how we're able to now have talks now uh, to make sure there's a fair distribution. Yeah, but the point still remains, though, is that the British have managed to get an enormous amount of people vaccinated. They're down with the under 50s now at this stage doing it. And we're trotting a long way behind them. Well, I think the projections are and Britain has said this themselves, that they're going to slow down pretty significantly, significantly next month in April uh, when we're going to be ramping up. Um, that's not just down to European factors. The Indian government apparently has banned exports and that's affecting Britain pretty severely. We're only a few weeks behind Britain. That's the reality of it. And I think it's possible that we're going to catch up on them. Roisin Shorthub, we're only a few weeks behind Britain. That's not the way the numbers come out, is it? Well, you have to bear in mind that in Britain, you know, they had a very bad start uh, and the death rate was exceptionally high. But in relation to the vaccinations, they certainly were in early. They put in very major orders at an early stage before Europe did, uh, as did the, the US also. And they put up a lot of money uh, to facilitate the pharmaceutical companies in producing the, the vaccines. Um, so do Europe, we make a mistake by being so trusting in the European Union that they would look after us? Well, look, Europe was late to the game. There's no doubt about that. They were in third uh, in relation to AstraZeneca, certainly. And that's where the big problems have been. Um, that is what it is. I mean, there's no 
getting out of that at this stage. I, I think the principle was right that Ireland would participate with the rest of the EU. But unfortunately, the EU was too late or very late in putting in the orders and we're paying a price for that. The British have also adopted another strategy on second dose. Isn't it? Perhaps they're correct, but experts in, in the rest of the world are saying no. We're about the same as them on second doses. And I think actually at some point over, and when I say weeks, I'm probably talking six weeks into two months, uh, we'll catch up with them on the rest. But it's not a race between countries. It's a race to get everybody vaccinated. They are um, different vaccines. So that has, has to be borne well, in mind. Yeah, yeah, but they, they've had, well, they they've can had a, stretch out the AstraZeneca. Yeah, yeah, but they've had a lot of Pfizer as well from, from Europe, a huge amount of Pfizer from Europe. And our, our fellow citizens in Northern Ireland are benefiting from that as well. But we've got, we will have got approximately 1.1 million vaccines up to the end of March or maybe the first day or two of April. Now, that's for over three months. We will have that amount at least in every month from now, from April, May and June. That's what the projections are. And as I speak, that sounds good. Um, obviously, these things can change, but Pfizer has been really, really dependable. And that doesn't include the full AstraZeneca contract. It includes, on a Europe-wide basis, 70 million out of 180 million but that's due. I, I think it's important to bear in mind, though, the original target was about one and a half million. Uh, in the first quarter. Uh, that was revised then. Uh, the Taoiseach said it, it was down to 1.2 million uh, by the end of March. That was revised further, 1.1 million. It's now very clear that we're not going to reach that figure by the end of, of March. Um, mm, as of now, there's about 700,000 doses that have been given. No, right, that's, that. a, that's a long way off the, the target that was set for the end of March. We'd need to be vaccinating the, the, about 40 thousand people every day the, I, I, I don't have we're not going, going I, to get anywhere near that I don't have access to the figures and what's been delivered but there were figures published tonight by media in association with the European Council talking about we may have got 850 up till two days ago so if that's the case then we will certainly be on course not administered no no not no, administered no. but what we've done on administration and I think I have to say fair play to everybody's involved in this Within seven days of these vaccines coming into the country, 95%... Yeah, but hold on. The minister said today we're on track to have 1.1 million received by the end of the month. Yeah. But how many of those will actually be administered? But because aren't there now issues coming the... up as well about whether we have enough people to actually give out these doses? Well, we've over 10,000 people trained. And I know that's an issue that you, you've, you've been, you know, various media have been talking about, but there's a huge amount of people trained um, to do but, that. But they're not all necessarily willing to do it on a full-time basis, are they? No, no, but the, the HSE seem to be pretty confident. I mean, and I would say this with the HSE, what, you know, and there have been problems, no doubt, that have been amplified in the media, except that. But 95% of doses that have come into this country so far have been administered within a week. And that's an extraordinary effort by everybody. Ocean, and also, they have, enough they have come in very slowly over a three-month period. But, we're told, we're told that April, May and June, there'll be about a million doses coming in per month. Now, that will require a massive ramping up of the capacity at the moment. Yeah. We'll need to nearly treble the, number, yeah. the daily figures that, that are being administered. And we haven't yet seen a published plan for doing that. We're told these people, you know, certain numbers of people have been trained. We're told there's going to be the different centres. We haven't seen anything on paper. And this is very reminiscent of us being assured that there was a plan for testing and tracing. It hasn't actually materialised yet fully. Uh, so that's why I and others have been calling for a published plan, set it out, who are the people who are going to do this, uh, where is it going to be done, and let's be sure that we are ready to ramp up to a mass vaccination plan for, for uh, at the beginning of April. And, you know, that's only... 
I, I, just I, over I, a week away. And I don't disagree with the, the last point you've made. I mean, but there, it is a fact that about 95% of vaccines are administered within a week so far. So the HSE have shown themselves... Yeah, but the numbers are that. going to be coming yeah, yeah. in much bigger. So do we have enough people to be administering I'm, a quarter of a million a week? Are we going to get to the position that Stephen Donnelly promised today of four out of five adults been vaccinated by the end of June. How confident can we really well, be about that? I think if we get the supply, I think we can be absolutely confident. And it looks certainly as we speak tonight, it looks like the supply will come. But, but look, but look nothing, none of this is predictable. But, you know, with absolute certainty. Um, but we have done a fantastic job up to now. What's going to happen is GPs are giving it out already. Pharmacists will be giving it out. We have the mass vaccination so, centres. Thomas, as of today, the pharmacists were asking, what is the plan? They don't know. They haven't been told. And that's just not good enough when we're almost into April. So, you know, it would be unforgivable that you would have large quantities being uh, delivered here and us not being ready to actually administer them. So that's what we, why we need it set out in paper. We need the government to come clean on this, tell us exactly how it's going to be done. And I can't understand the delay in them doing that. Yeah, look, I mean, there's no delay. I mean, a few, a few weeks, literally weeks ago, when we announced that basically everybody in nursing homes had been vaccinated. We were actually accused of lying. We see already now death rates almost eliminated, COVID almost eliminated from nursing homes because of the success of that vaccination campaign. We've had certainly problems with the rollout at times, but we've had almost 700,000 vaccines administered. 13.2% south of the border, 45% north of the border. So as they continue to stay ahead of us, how are we going to actually manage that, particularly with cross-border travel? Well, as I said, Matt, the British government, which obviously is supplying Northern Ireland, have announced that they're going to have huge restrictions now in April in terms of the numbers of vaccines that are due to come through to them not because of the EU, but because of the factory in India, uh, I suspect. Uh, I suspect that we will actually catch up. Now, it will take a bit of time, uh, but in terms of, as we speak tonight, and Stephen Donnelly is okay. always saying to caveat it, and he's right. Yeah, all right. But as we speak tonight, just the supply looks very good for the European Union. That you actually do manage to get five, four out of five adults vaccinated by the end of June. What is that actually going to mean? Is it going to mean that society can open up and we can more or less get back to normal? Well, I certainly hope so. <laughs> I mean, that's the point. Uh, and that's the point. I mean, clearly the medics are very conservative, very cautious, and they're right to be at this particular phase because we saw even in Israel, which has gone way ahead, that they had a bit of a wave during the vaccination process for various reasons. Um, so we have to be very, very cautious of that in the next few weeks. But already we're seeing the results where, you know, older people are not getting COVID at the same extent. Presumably that means the death rate is, is dropping. We see, we see, we do see lower death rate at the moment. I don't know, is that attributable to that? Okay. But we'll see that over the next few weeks. Roisin, do you think could we still be at level five all the way to the end of June until we reach this four out of five adults been vaccinated? Well, there's no indication as of now that we're in a position to come out of level five um, for the foreseeable. Um, we haven't been told what the, the target figure is, the daily figure. Uh, the figures, regrettably, are going up again. Um, and, I mean, I made the point to the Tonish that today in the Dáil that it's going to be really hard to keep people with, us, with the, the, the pr programme and with the plan unless the government is seen to be playing its part. And there are a number of areas where I think they're not playing their part. I think the area of travel is something I have been highlighting for some time. There's an incredible fact that I came across just recently. People are told not to travel and not to engage in international travel unless it's absolutely essential. Um, we know that nearly 50% of people travelling in and out of the country were travelling for non-essential purposes. And we know that because those figures were, were kept every week. At the beginning of, of February, the government, for whatever reason, decided that they were no longer going to ask people why they were travelling. 
if it was for essential purposes or not. That, I mean, I just cannot understand that. Now we have no idea why people are travelling. Very quickly, well, just, just, why is that? Well, I'd say, first of all, if you're coming from the, one of the lists of countries that is now subject to a mandatory hotel quarantine, doesn't matter what your reason is, effectively. No, uh, there's no it's all the other countries I'm talking no, about. No, no, but let's, let's start no, with that. No, but, so, no know, matter whether you're coming in, whether Europe... you're coming from one of those countries for funerals, as they've already been onto our offices, people who are going to be affected by this, and that's, that's what the law is now. There is no exemption. It doesn't matter why you're coming in. You go into the hotel for quarantine for, for the But, Thomas, you time. know that's the majority of travellers coming into this country. Oh, sorry, excuse me, it's a minority. S sorry. It's a minority of travellers yeah, coming into but, this but country the has also that said, are coming from those yeah, yeah, Category the, 2 countries. But there's also a requirement to quarantine at home um, as well, with very little uh, exemption but, from but that. I, I um, there's also going to be an ex extension. If, no if it's against the rules to travel for non-essential purposes, why but, did you stop asking for, people the, for, the reason for travel? For mandatory hotel quarantine, there is no such thing as essential travel. It just doesn't exist. I'm talking, you know I'm talking exist. about the majority like, of travellers. Why stop asking the question? Well, because it, do, it certainly doesn't arise in mandatory hotel quarantine and anyone coming But we in hadn't even introduced a mandatory hotel quarantine at the start of February. It's only coming in this week. So you've had about six and weeks in which you're not asking the question well, as to where people what, are coming what, from. Well, what we've done as well is that before you come into the country, you have to have a negative test. If you, if you don't have that, you won't get on a plane. Right. It's also a criminal offence. And you have to quarantine at home. Okay, and I, you I have to quarantine at home. I want to bring the weakest part of the government's because response. We're joined now by Kieran McQuinn, the ESI research professor, because today issued a report in which, Kieran, you said we're not really going to get a recovery in the jobs market until about 2023. Why not? Well, uh, Matt, I think the situation is that, you know, again, subject to the public health assumptions that we've made in terms of our report, we're fairly confident that the economy will recover quite strongly through the latter half of this year. I mean, that's assuming that the vaccination program is successfully uh, rolled out. Uh, and as a result, we also believe that the economy will perform quite strongly in 2022. Now, the unemployment situation at present, as you know, we have around 25% of people unemployed. That's taking the standard unemployment definition and those on the, the, the POP payment. Uh, so that's a particularly, obviously, a very, very high rate of unemployment. Our expectation is, is that that will come down uh, through this year as the economy opens up and that the unemployment rate will hit around 10% by the end of this year, and it will continue to fall through next year, um, reaching around 6% by the end of 2022. So you are talking about 2023 before you're getting back to the unemployment rate that we observed just before the pandemic hit, which was around just under 5%. OK, that's a long um, time for people to wait, Karen. The other thing I want to ask you about is the supply of new houses and apartments, because it looks as if we're going to fall way short of what we need What's that going to do as well for the uh, prices of what is available? Yeah, so again, I mean, if we look at what we expect to see this year in terms of housing supply, we believe there'll be around 15,000 units built. Uh, and even that may be on the optimistic side. And um, we expect something similar next year. To put that in context, when we were doing our initial set of forecasts at the start of last year, we would have expected somewhere in the region of 25, 26,000 units to be built this year. So, you know, we had this imbalance between supply and demand even before the COVID situation hit, as everybody is, is very well aware of. And so, unfortunately, I think what's likely to happen now is that that imbalance is going to be exacerbated because of COVID. And we've seen that the supply side of the housing market is typically much slower to respond to a shock than, for example, uh, the demand side of the market. So, unfortunately, uh, it means that if, you know, if we see demand picking up, which we expect that it will through this year and into next year, and you've also the issue, of course, of the very large savings rates that are out there, 
if we see demand picking up uh, in the context of the lower supply, then that will put uh, additional pressure on house prices and indeed even on rents. Okay. So I'm afraid that's kind of what we're, I suppose, the, what you're looking at over the, the, the short term. Karen the SRI, thank you very much for joining us. Roisin Shortall, we have about 40% of construction still underway for essential things like hospitals, schools and major multinational factories like the new Intel one. Should we not be treating housing the same way and put the construction workers back to work in that sector next month? I think there is an argument for uh, for resuming uh, house building. I think there's a lot of other construction work that isn't necessary um, or shouldn't be regarded as a priority that is underway at the moment. Uh, there needs to be much greater adherence to safety precautions in relation to this, but I think some of the sites certainly uh, in relation to house building could resume uh, with proper distancing and, and controls. But of course, we have to bear in mind that supply is one aspect of the housing problem. Um, the other issue is affordability, of course. And, you know... The, well, the less the, houses are built, the more unaffordable they're likely to be. Thomas Byrne, well, why, why don't you just get the construction? It's in the open air for most people. Get that going again. Well, I'm glad to see Roche moving slightly away from the zero COVID uh, strategy and, and acknowledging that some building should be happening. Um, because house building is really, really important. And I think what the ESRA has said is logical. Supply is the problem with, affordab with, with affordability. That's the key issue. The government is clearly going to be making decisions over the weekend. I'm not going to speculate on that matter. We've got into enough trouble for that type of speculation over the last few months. The but the government have said, and Tisha has said continually, uh, that construction is a priority after schools. Schools have opened. We want to continue them to open. And I hope that the zero COVID av advocates want that as well. Um, and to ensure that we build houses, because that clearly is a, a major well, national problem that we want to solve. Thomas, I'd make the point that if it's a, it's a pity the government didn't follow a zero COVID uh, strategy last year. We're still waiting for a clear strategy to be set out by government. And we're still waiting for the public health doctors to be properly resourced. We're still waiting for proper retrospective tracing. These are all actions that the government promised up to a year ago, and we haven't seen those yet. Very briefly to both of you, the Ulster Bank fine of 38 million today. Will that be enough to dissuade the banks? AIB and Bank of Ireland are due to have their own fines announced soon. Do you think the banks are now better behaved than they have been in the last decade? I don't really, no. I mean, I think they still have to learn lessons and there still has to be much tighter regulation. And we saw, I mean, across the, the financial sector generally, we saw this kind of attitude through Davy, um, through uh, Ulster Bank closing down the branches, through Bank of Ireland, uh, the, the whole treatment of, of the whole mortgage situation. I think there's need for much, much stronger regulation of that okay. sector. A lot of this happened. Ulster Bank is only one of all of them doing it. A lot of it happened at banks that were under state control at the time. Ulster Bank wasn't under the Irish state control. Well, it was under, I said, the other yeah, bank. Yeah. So Bank yeah, of yeah. Ireland, AIB, permanent TSB. What happened here was absolutely outrageous. People lost their homes. Fundamentally, I think is the really serious point. People lost money. People were under severe pressure. Shouldn't have happened. What can't happen in general, though, is that customers then pay that price indirectly. With Ulster Bank, I hope it's the shareholders, shareholders that will ultimately pay, pay the price, including the British government. OK, thank you to Roisin Shortall for joining us. Minister of State Thomas Byrne will be staying with us. And after the break, is it time to scrap that five-kilometre rule as pressure mounts government to deliver a concrete plan for easing restrictions and broadcaster Eamon Dunphy on his relationship with Irish sporting legend Jack Charlton. Planning for your next trip? 
Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Welcome back. Minister of State Thomas Byrne is still with us. We're joined now by Dr Jack Lambert of the UCD School of Medicine. The numbers of confirmed cases remain stubbornly high, over 600 today. Why is that? I mean, is it failure of our lockdown restrictions or what is it? Well, well, first off, this is a new virus. It's twice as infectious as the virus that we saw in the springtime. So um, in order to get the numbers down, you need to do even better than you were doing before. And I think the current COVID prevention that we're doing is not good enough. And, and the so are the restrictions not tight enough to your mind? Well, well, well I, I think people are not practicing safe COVID prevention behaviours. So, so, yes, too many people are going to work. I mean, we're not really in lockdown like we were in the springtime. A lot of people are going to work, and when they're at work, they're not, they're transmitting the virus. Because, and they're more likely to transmit the virus because this virus is twice as infectious as the first wave virus. So I just think you know, maybe using the mask 70% of the time in the springtime was okay. But if, if you're going to go to work now, you have to be doing it 99% correct, not 70% correct. Okay, but at the same time, if we're not having the same number of hospitalizations and deaths and ICU numbers, and if the most vulnerable are vaccinated, is this an acceptable level of daily confirmed cases? Actually, you know, in, so, in some ways, we yes. I w I've never been in favour of, of lockdown. I've never been in favour of using numbers exclusively to determine when you should open up and lock down. The, the, the people who are becoming infected now are younger, younger children. But I'm just saying it is a more highly infectious virus. The reason it's not going down is because it's still circulating in large numbers and people are not doing the COVID prevention. The hand washing, the face masks, you know, lockdown is not a solution. Social distancing is not a solution. People are in close contact. Let's make them safe as they go forward in, in, in those situations. Okay, so as Jack is telling us this variant is twice as infectious as the one last year. This time last year, we were in a two-kilometre zone. Mm. The schools were closed. Everybody was staying at home. Nobody was visiting each other's gardens or going into each other's houses. The fact that people are doing that now and Ronan Glynn saying one in ten, many people think it might be higher than that. Does that suggest that the government has just simply lost the confidence and support of the people in the measures needed to deal with the virus? No, I look, I think government clearly has a role, but the public has a role too. Um, and I don't think it's necessarily fair to, to attribute everything to the public. It is really, really difficult. I mean, last April, it, it, I won't say a novelty, but it was new. 
the weather was very, very good. People were out walking um, and not expecting it to last the year. And quite frankly, I think people are browned off. But, but as Dr. Lambert has said, it's a completely new virus, effectively, because it's just easier to pass around. I mean, there's no way we would have opened up to the extent that we did at Christmas, for example, if we had the full information or if the, you know, if the government had the full information on the, on the B variant, it was there. But certainly not, if, if we had known now what we know, uh, know then what we know now, we wouldn't have opened up. And I would agree with that. I mean, I know nobody knew that the, this new variant was coming into the country in the numbers it was. It's, you know, you're, it stays more infectious in your body for a longer period of time, and it's probably more infectious. Right. Has a good so, enough job been done in persuading people of that? I mean, it's not very often you hear it been said, this is a new virus, this is a worse virus. No, no, not. And I think that is the message. I listened to one of the public health people a couple of days ago commenting on why the numbers are high. And when they were asked, what do you do to keep the numbers down? They said, socially distance. I think the message should be, I've got many of my staff over Christmas, New Year, who were meticulous in their hand and doing everything right. Three of them caught COVID. So they must have caught it just in one of those inapparent moments or from hand contact, you know, with surfaces and stuff. I think we need to just tell people more infectious, be extra careful about using a mask, be extra careful about washing your hands, proactively make efforts to keep the numbers down rather than chasing the numbers and lecturing to people, the numbers are going up, the numbers are going down. Give people proactive advice on how to keep the numbers down, what they can do to be part of the solution. Yeah, I mean, I agree with that. I mean, certainly as well. I mean, while masking is very at very high rates, let's be honest, I mean, almost everybody is wearing masks. Some people aren't in some supermarkets. And I think, you know, I think supermarkets should be enforcing that. And they're entitled to enforce that. I mean, that's just, we're discussing that off air. And we've all seen examples of it. But but the vast majority are, are complying completely as best they can. And it's very, very difficult. OK, but then what about these new things like walk-in centres? One year into this pandemic, suddenly you don't actually have to make an appointment. You can stroll in and get a test if you feel you don't have any symptoms. What do you make of that? Well, you know, I think there is a role for walk-in testing. There was a role back in June, you know, before, before the summer, you know, started. We should, we should have done it a long time ago. Now, is that is one part of the solution? Is it, is it a miraculous is it going to be a you know, game changer? I don't think so. But yes, it, it will be important to make it easier for people to access testing. OK, we've been testing. hearing from Thomas, and we've been hearing it from all government spokespeople in recent days, that they will get the vaccination programme right. Do you share that confidence, given that we didn't exactly get contact tracing right, did we? We still only go back a couple of days rather than going back a week and further, as they do in other countries, so as to actually really ruthlessly suppress clusters? Right. Well, well the, the question is, it, are, are, are we behind the eight balls with the vaccine? Yes, we are, I think. And some of that is because of vaccine supply. But I think all part of it is also because of preparedness. So when the vaccine supply does come along, I think we have to have all of our ducks in a row. And I'm not sure right now we have all of our ducks in a row. So we have to work on that. Yeah, would so, you be confident that we would have enough people to administer the vaccine and the organisation to do it in much greater scale and numbers than is being achieved at present? Um, I have concerns about that. And, 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 I'd like to, if, if, and I'd like to have my concerns relieved by a document showing... I mean, I saw the document from November, the, the COVID vaccine plan, and it was said there were going to be, there was going to be, they're going to hire 2,000 new people for vaccination. Now they announced there's 10 people, 10,000 people trained. But there's a difference between 10 having people doing some kind of a, you know, a, a, a virtual training as opposed to 10,000 being 
boots on the ground who are going to be able to go in there and do the vaccination when the vaccine comes along. So I, I do think we have to carefully look at our resources and our manpower that are available when the vaccines roll in. Yeah, and that's that's happening. And the point I made, you know, there's a lot of scepticism about this. Would we reach the targets? You know, we're not that far off. Um, we've within seven, seven days, 95% of vaccine is into arms. And that's a great tribute to the medical profession and all those people working on it. Jack, you're an expert in infectious diseases. What do you make of the phenomenon that's been described of long COVID, that many people are suffering after effects for a long time? Is this something that you are concerned about? Because there is a school of thought as well that it's not as real an issue as some people are portraying. Right. Well, no, no, no. I think it's absolutely real. And, and, and people kind of say, well, let only, COVID only affects old people, you know, and it's that, that we're going to have something happen to them. But it's affecting younger people. And it's not just a, a long COVID is not just affecting people that end up sick in the hospital. People with mild illnesses, 25 year olds, three months later are just totally devastated, unable to go back to work. And I've seen a couple of people now a year into their COVID who were infected last March. I have a COVID follow-up clinic at the Mater Hospital. Um, I have a research grant through the HRB for long COVID that I put together back a year ago, March, because you could see it coming. So I think it is a real, it's a real consideration. About, I would say 10% of all people that have COVID have lingering symptoms for three to six months. And some of those symptoms are really limiting their quality of life. Okay, we'll have to leave it there. Our thanks to Thomas Byrne and Dr. Jack Lambert. After the break, we'll be joined by broadcaster Eamon Dunphy on the highly anticipated documentary Finding Jack Charlton about the former football manager's iconic sporting moments and also his difficult battle with dementia. There was something almost magical up here. It mattered. To be authentic for the first time in your life. It's an amazing feat. We were Irish. The nation holds its breath. Yes, An extraordinary soccer roller coaster. We took that flag back from the violent Republican movement and flew it with pride. Another magnificent chapter in Jack Charlton's managerial career. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Welcome back. Now, this week, Virgin Media Television partnered with the Alzheimer's Society of Ireland to launch Donate for Dementia, a week-long fundraiser to help raise awareness and vital funds to support people with all forms of dementia. The week will conclude with the highly anticipated broadcast of Finding Jack Charlton, filmed during the last 18 months of Jack's life. The programme captured the previously undocumented battle he had with dementia. 
We're joined now by the broadcaster of The Stand podcast, Eamon Dunphy. But first, let's take a quick look at a clip from the film. It's not the same, Jack. You're going to be the worst train in the world for me. I'm a bag of nerves here. Just now and again, you see bits of him. Welcome the most consistently successful and most controversial football manager in these islands, Jack Charlton. I couldn't remember a lot of the memories. No. Never mind. It's dementia. His memory's not there. And it's a shame. Because he's had some good memories. I couldn't remember all of the memories. Eamon Dunphy, I think we all have so many memories of Jack Charlton, his time in Ireland and beyond. How do you think people are going to feel when they see this? How do you feel about it? Well, I feel very sad, Matt. Um, and I think people will feel it's very poignant. Uh, it's very sad. Um, and he was, you know, he is or was a good man. Uh, he loved Ireland. Irish people loved him. And uh, it's very sad uh, to see him like that. I was talking to John Giles the other day, and John and he were very close for a long time. And the last time John met Jack, Jack said, look, John, um, I haven't got a great memory, but then I never had a great memory. And he didn't. I mean, he couldn't remember the players' names and that. But it, it is very poignant, and it, it is very sad. And we are beginning, uh, by seeing a film like this, to understand how terrible this disease of dementia, Alzheimer's, is. Yeah, and there's concerns, isn't there, for a lot of footballers of that generation from the heading of over then very heavy footballs. Indeed, only recently, the man who succeeded Jack Charlton in the Leeds team, Gordon McQueen, played for about five years for Leeds afterwards. His family said he is, has dementia and he's only 68. Yes, uh, it, it, many of the players of that era were heading balls uh, and in particular position centre-half being one of them, but also centre-forwards. Uh, and we are only now um, learning about the significance of concussion uh, and blows to the head. Uh, so uh, it's, it's very sad. Um, it is sports-related, and sports now are beginning to address it. But let's talk about the joy that Jack Charlton brought to us in Ireland. Focus on the positive. But also, wasn't it remarkable in many respects just how popular he became in the late 80s, early 90s, at a time when this island still wasn't at peace, when there was a considerable anti-British sentiment to play? Yes, it, it, it was remarkable, Matt. I went on a road trip with him. For the first two years, John introduced us and we got on fine. And I went to Ballina with Jack. He was doing an after-dinner speech, which he was brilliant at. But in the afternoon, he went fishing. 
in, uh, in, and he was he, he really loved Ireland, and Irish people loved him. He loved the informality, uh, and Jack himself was a very genuine, plain-spoken guy, uh, and he loved that. I mean, in England, don't forget, he'd applied to be manager of England uh, when the job was going, and he didn't get a reply from the English FA. Uh, they didn't think Jack was the right type. Now, we don't go in for that kind of thing so much in this country, and he loved that. He loved Irish people. And yet he was a proud Englishman, and he was a World Cup winner in 1966. And yet, possibly some of the greatest days of his managerial career were against England. The European Championships in 98, the World Cup draw in 1990. And then, of course, he was so upset by what happened in Lansdowne Road in 95 when the English hooligans got a game abandoned. But those Ireland-England games were a massive part of his life. They were, yes. And the, the win in Stuttgart was a huge... Um, and uh, I think every time we played England, they never beat us, that I can remember. We drew with them in the World Cup. Uh, and, yeah, he did. Um, but he was, first and foremost, a football man. And he, uh, he had a kind and generous nature. The way he uh, looked after Paul McGrath and... Uh, got, saw Paul through uh, difficult times, protected Paul, was sympathetic to him and understood. Uh, and Paul is a wonderful man, you know, a great man, great player. Jack, you know, he, sometimes he put on a, a facade, if you like, of being a hard man. He was also a sensitive and decent man. Of course, you had your differences. Um, I'm not sure he always referred to you by name. I think he might have called you daft bugger quite a few times. Did you ever reconcile? Did you ever come to any understanding afterwards as to the reasons why you were critical? Because I think you felt there was more in his teams that he could have gotten out of them. Well, yes. I mean, it, ours was a football disagreement. But really, Jack's time here was about much more than football. Um, Jack was tough. He, he exiled David O'Leary for three years at the beginning of his uh, time in charge of Ireland. Uh, Ronnie Whelan, who captained Liverpool to win uh, the then First Division, now Premier League, uh, didn't get on the pitch in Italia 90, which was mad. So we were arguing about football. But the Charlton era and his time in Ireland was about so much more than football matters. Um, we didn't ever meet uh, uh, and have a pint uh, after I had done my job. But I was writing about soccer. I don't think Jack was only about soccer, Matt. And you know yourself, you like your football. But Jack, Mary Harney had a go at me one night. Will you leave that man alone? You don't know what you're talking about. He's doing a great job for Ireland. I said, how would you know? And, of course... She'd watched them all, and uh, there's that amazing image of John Healy crying when we won the penalty shootout against Romania, bursting into tears. I mean, John Healy was from the west of Ireland. Uh, he knew nothing about football, but something in that Irish team touched him, and something that Jack left us, and this is his real legacy, touched a lot of people in those years. 
And I think a lot of people are going to be touched when they see Finding Jack Charlton here on Virgin Media One on Sunday night, because I believe it is very, very, very special and very important. Eamon Dunphy, thank you very much for being with us on The Tonight Show. And if you'd like to donate to the Alzheimer's Society of Ireland, then text the word MEMORY to 50300 to donate €4. Euro. OK, we're joined now in studio by the political correspondent with the Irish Examiner, Aoife Moore, who's been getting the inside track on what we can expect next week. Can we expect much, though? ENFIT meeting next Monday mm -hmm. with these numbers stubbornly high. Mm -hmm. Are we going to get a lot of give from the government, do you think, next Tuesday? There's not going to be huge changes that are really going to change people's lives. Like we've seen signals from last weekend, even, you know, Michael McGrath, the minister said, you know, they understood that lockdown was really getting to people, you know, as the weather gets better. They were talking a lot about outdoor activities that would help meet people's mental health. Sources in the government are saying today that it is highly likely that the five kilometre rule that we're currently under for exercise will be taken away. Simon Harris was on radio this morning, the Minister for Higher Education. He said uh, that the five kilometre was driving people bonkers. And there was a lot of chat last night at the Fianna Fáil party meeting when someone suggested it could go up to 20 kilometres. I believe it was Lisa Chambers said, if you live in a rural area, five kilometres, 20 kilometres doesn't really make that much of a difference. There was some talk today about making it countywide, but again, they're not going to make any decisions until they speak to NEFIT. NEFIT are meeting on Monday, and I was told today that government staff were told that anything we are told will be heavily caveated with how the numbers are going. But will they allow things like outdoor sport for children? Because you can already see people are having impromptu mm -hmm. sporting sessions. Mm -hmm. Yesterday I was watching people pucking a ball around in a local park, various things going on. Will they allow things like golf and tennis, which surely out in the open air, people should be safe? I am told that within the Fine Gael Parliamentary Party, I mean, golf and tennis were, were mentioned. Um, there are no set decisions on that yet. We know that children's outdoor sport is likely to come back when they get rid of the five kilometre limit as well. We know that that's a lot more likely. But I do think we will see some easing around outdoor exercise just because of the signals that we're getting from the likes of Simon Harris and Michael McGrath. They've mentioned people's mental health and exercise, so I assume... What about be. things like work then? Because Thomas Byrne didn't want to be drawn on construction, but is there a big push on, do you think, to allow more construction open up? Absolutely. Like, we know that um, the housing minister, Dara O'Brien, was pushing for it a couple of weeks ago. So we know that he's really pushing and lobbying to get construction open. You know, we've had statistics from the ESRI saying that we're missing, you know, housing targets. The housing crisis is only getting worse. So there will be strong push for that. And I heard construction lobbyists on today saying, you know, 60% of house building is actually outside. So it's not as high risk as other ones. But I do think a lot of it will come down to NEFIT on Monday. But I think if the government thinks that they can get away with reopening construction, they will. And retail, any chance of click and collect even for things like books and clothes? This is another thing that was lobbied at Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil party meetings about click and collect for small businesses, bookshops, stuff like this. So I think that might be likely to return. You know, it's, it's low risk again, something like click and collect, and it will be helped to small businesses, which the government are really, really keen to support. Now, is all politics at the moment about lockdown restrictions and the easing of them? Or are the continuing controversies about Leo Varadkar and the leak and the Greens' internal machinations, are they getting any sort of traction anywhere outside of just the inside political circles? 
It's hard to tell. I think, for instance, with the Green Party story, I do think it's a bit of a bubble story. You know, in the grand scheme of things, this is a Shannon by-election. This is Hazel Chew, the Dublin Lord yes. Mayor, going on a solo run. Yes, so Hazel Chew, the Dublin Lord Mayor, has now found the nominations herself outside of a party selection convention to run in the Shannon by-election. Now, I think for the vast majority of the public, they're not 100% sure what the Shannon does and they know even less about Shannon by-elections. And they don't be voting in it as well, yeah. <laughs> exactly. So I don't think, outside of the Dublin bubble, I don't think that the Hazel Chew story has re resonated. What about the Leo Varadkar story? Is this really going to perhaps really cause some serious issues? It depends who you talk to. You know, it seems to be every Sunday, every Sunday newspaper comes out, there is a different, you know, something else, there's a different revelation. But the de Sorry, the irony of leaks yeah. from the Garda investigation. Yeah, the leaking about the leak. So, you know, Leo Varadkar said from the start, you know, none of these revelations in this paper's change anything. His statement from November stands, it wasn't best practice, but it wasn't illegal, and he's not overly worried about this Garda investigation, and he'll cooperate when he can. Um, we have seen, though, that there is public appetite for it. People are talking about it a lot. And, opt like, the optics for Fine Gael, it doesn't look great. You know, they market themselves as the party of law and order, and now the Tanish is at the centre of this criminal probe. Now, as I have noticed when you're speaking to people in Fine Gael, the closer they are to Leo Varadkar, the less worried they are. The further you go out from Leo Varadkar's inner circle, the more worried they become until the backbenchers are very worried, you know, they're briefing off the record saying, listen, we think it would be better if he stood aside. But as of yet, no one in his own party has come forward and said that. OK, that's great. Thank you very much for being with us, Aoife Moore. That is all we have time for tonight. Now, I'll be back on Today FM tomorrow afternoon. Kira will be here on Monday night at 10 o'clock. And also, don't forget to tune in to Finding Jack Charlton. It's here on Virgin Media One at 9 o'clock this Sunday, the 28th of March. And it is definitely one worth watching, whether you're a football fan or not. Stay safe. Thanks for watching. And have a very good night. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series.